the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. As we head into Hour 2 this Monday, it's a delight to bring back Brandon Weikert, whom we bring on every Monday at this time to talk to us about the uh, goings-on internationally, uh, defense, uh, foreign relations, and we do some local, uh, excuse me, some domestic politics as well. He actually has a really interesting column on domestic politics over at the Weikert Report, which is his website, the Weikert Report. Com that I want to talk to him about as well, including why is it that liberals keep beating us all the time. Uh, before I do that, though, Brendan, uh, welcome back. Um, I wanted to talk to you about John Kerry in Iran. This story blows me away. Turns out John Kerry is talking to the foreign minister of Iran, uh, uh, Zara Jarif, about counterintelligence and counterterrorism activity by Israel against Iranians in Syria. This is an incredible story, Brandon. It's really not. I mean, this is clearly what the Democrats have been wanting since Obama. I mean, remember, Obama came into office. He was a a good friend of Rashid Khalidi, one of the great anti-Israeli activists in America today. It's not surprising that uh, John Kerry, who served under Obama, who claims to have been the man that discovered Obama, who yet again is in government, albeit not directly involved with Iran, but he is still having a hand in foreign policy under the Biden administration. To no surprise that he and people like him in power now are acting completely in contravention to the interests of a longtime ally like Israel. These people are very predictable. And I'm actually surprised that these these kind of crazy lefties weren't doing this before. I suppose some of us or many of us would have suspected John Kerry giving a lot away to Zarif uh, or the Iranians uh, to get his nuclear deal and to maintain good relations thereafter. <clears throat> I suppose a lot of us assumed a lot of appeasement. John Kerry himself not so brightly explained that he couldn't guarantee the money we were giving them wouldn't end up in the hands of terrorists, right? right? He's still confronted by that quote from time to time. Now we see he's giving information on our ally, military information on our ally to our enemy. I I just, I just, I, I, is this a story that the mainstream is going to cover? Do they care about it? No, no, and no, no, no. I will go one further. This is more than appeasement. I mean, you know, Munich was appeasement. The Brits were not helping the Nazis under Chamberlain. That's correct. Right? That was appeasement. This is actually a complete reorientation at a fundamental level of U.S. national policy toward Israel and the Middle East. And it is clear that this – so in 2010 – It's as if Donald Trump wanted a deal, an energy deal with Russia and gave away Ukrainian military defense secrets to Putin. Right. 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 That actually, I'm not even going to say anything. Um, but um, 
I mean, that actually would have been preferable in many respects for American interests. Agreed. What, what, the, what, the, Biden, what the Biden administration is doing yeah. is uh, basically shooting our foot off, or what do you say, uh, cutting your nose off to spite your face. You know, the, the objective, I understand, they want to get us out of the Middle East. They don't want us to be as involved in the day-to-day ongoings in the Middle East. That is something that we all agree on. The difference is, we don't, on the right, believe that you should be throwing traditional allies like Israel and even the Sunni Arab states under the bus. You can't do that. That's not how you exit. That's how you hand the region off to the bad guys, Iran and now China and Russia. You don't want to do it that way. The way that Obama and Biden, Obama tried to do it, Biden is now doing it. Um, that is a surefire way to ensnare the United States, actually, in a greater regional, possibly world war, because there's no way Israel or the Sunni Arabs are going to be okay with us handing off the region to Iran. And we shouldn't want to either. It's a disaster. It is a disaster. And this notion of getting the U.S. out of the Middle East is the opposite of a disaster, it seems like. I mean, it seems like um, a major page had turned in the American mind somewhere around 2009 or 10, irrespective of presidential politics, Brandon. And that page that turned, I think, was that – how do I put this? American force, while strong and honorable and noble, is not strong enough, honorable enough, and noble enough – to change such centuries-long anti-democratic right. culture. I think somewhere the American page turned from we can export democracy to we can't yeah. really. And right. Do- Donald Trump's presidency, kind of like the border situation, handed yep. that template to Joe Biden. Yep. If you want yep. out, here's how to do it. And the way to yep. do it is to get rid of deals that entangle you with tyrants and wash your hands and walk away as the broker of something that can never be brokered. Right, right. Well, actually, even if you want to be in Russia, the Middle East, futz around with Israel and the Palestinians. Right, right, right. Um, and actually, he, Trump also had another success, which was the Russia policy. And now we're seeing, after almost going to war, uh, Biden's having to basically re-implement the, the Trump policy uh, from you know the, the bottom up now. Uh, but um, uh, in terms of the Middle East, uh, Biden's going about it all wrong. And he is trying to inflame and distance ourselves from allies and, you know, hug the enemy in Iran. But the enemy in Iran has been very clear since 1979. They yelled death to America on a daily basis, death to little Israel, or little Satan, Israel, death to big Satan, America. And that is the mantra instilled in the in the Iranian mindset. Now, I don't believe all Iranians think that that is something they should do, but the regime does. And the New York Times is finally reporting something that, which all of us in the foreign policy field have known for, for decades, that uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, the unit that uh, Qasim Soleimani uh, belonged to, they're the ones calling the shots in Iran. It is not the Iranian political leaders. They're figureheads. Now, they were always figureheads for the mullahs, but now it's sounding like actually the IRGC might actually even be influencing the mullahs, not the other way around. But either way, the IRGC are fanatical Islamists. They're Shiites, but they're fanatical Islamists, and they are going to not 
have our best interest if we keep going down the path that we are under Biden. And it's very scary because it is not going to end well for this country. We will be, I've said this before, and if my next book gets published, I'm still waiting to hear back from the publisher. Uh, I'll should know in another month. But, but my next book is all about how World War III, because of what Biden's doing right now, World War III is going to begin. If it begins anywhere, it will be in the Middle East and it will be Iran starting it. Of course it will. Of course it will. And and that's why it seems to me that we're playing with fire here. Absolutely. Because it turns out what you have said and what every expert on Iran I have talked to has said, whether it's Michael Rubin or Michael Ledeen mm-hmm. or expatriates from Iran I have spoken to, any number of which I have, um, I have been able and fortunate to call my friends over the years. Every single one the same thing, and no one ever gave it credence until the New York Times today. And right. that's this. It's exactly what it's exactly what um, what uh, what Zarif is uh, saying to the New York Times, which is I'll quote the New York Times. His role as the representative of the Islamic Republic on the world stage is severely constricted. Decisions yeah. are directed by the supreme dictated by the supreme leader or the RGC, which is what you said. Every expert on Iran has said that for years, that while secretaries of state were coddling around and playing around with the with the president or the the foreign minister, that it was irrelevant. Everything redounded to the RCG and Khomeini. Khomeini. Yep. Yep. Yep, It does. And, you know, this is the same thing. There's a lot of parallels here between China uh, and Iran, because. Because I remember in 2016, before my friends of the policy community had discovered uh, that I was supporting Trump, um, I remember being... Where was this? Where were you when this happened? What were you doing? I was. This was in Washington, D.C., and I was interfacing, as we say, with a very prominent uh, American space strategist. Oh, okay. As you know, my area is space. Yeah. And he does a lot of work in the People's Republic of China. And I was talking to him, and he was saying, no, Brandon, you don't understand... China's just like America. They've got their own political factions. I said, sure. But at the end of the day, it's the Politburo and the communist minders. They're still in control. No, no, he said. No, there's a liberal wing. There's a liberal wing that we can deal with. And this is the And of course, it's completely absurd. And we see now today. Yeah, the same thing that was said about Rouhani. Yeah, right. Right, right. And it's the same thing that's being said about Iran. Mm -hmm. And I can't stress this enough. There are people in Iran who are totally normal people who have no problem with us, but they're not in charge. The people who are calling the shots and who have aggravated power toward themselves for the last 40 plus years are the crazies. They're the nut jobs. They're the people who want to detonate nukes in America. Hold that thought, Brandon. Let let me come back on the other side, because I I mean, I'd like to think there is a way out here and that there is a um, there is another side we can be dealing with. It's an amazingly great and successful people that has been under the veil for far too long. I'm Seth. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Power bills are increasing. Stop giving your money away to the power companies. Save it. And in some cases, many cases, after you go solar, they'll be sending a check to you. We know it's getting hot already this year. Don't suffer through another summer of astronomical power bills or having to keep your house fairly warm because you're afraid of your power bills being so high. This is where my friend Solar 
Sandy comes in, the woman who brought integrity back to solar. Sandy has an amazing reputation for her honesty and integrity, but most importantly, she's actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill by going solar with her. If you sign up with Solar Sandy now, she will pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. That's right, a $1,000 signing bonus, no power bill payments, and no solar panel payments for an entire year. She can do appointments in person or by Zoom. Sandy has an extremely good reputation for her honesty, as I've mentioned. If you've been been before, burned before, you know what that means. Give her a call. She is known by me and her customers as trustworthy. To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com and let Sandy do all the work. That's AskSolarSandy.com or give her a call at 623-850-8229. We're talking with Brandon Weikert of The Weikert Report, also author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. And we're talking uh, a little bit about this John Kerry story with Iran and implications. We lost Brandon. Uh, we'll call him right back. Implications because um, it, it it appears it appears that one of the things we were worried about in two thousand nine, when there was an organic revolution in Iran was that one of the things that appeared to us quite broad, quite boldly at the time was there was a faction of Iranians who liked us and we could work with. Of course, that revolution was shut down with the help of Barack Obama. And the question becomes, Brandon, as you were saying right before break, who in Iran do we do business with? Because it is a question of, as so many dictatorships in the past have been, the leadership versus the people. And Iran, the Persian culture, is such an immensely educational, art-based, technologically uh, advanced culture. It, it, it's just what's been done to it is a crime against humanity in many respects. And one has to ask and hope that there are cultural remnants of the Enlightenment still in Iran who we can do business with. I don't know if there are. There are, but they won't. I really don't think there's going to be enough of them to change anything without a war. Um, and I don't think, obviously, we should be in the business of regime change. Um, but um, what, what I think is going to happen, if, if we continue on this path, um, I think that, that it will, we will destabilize the region by trying to normalize or elevate Iran from regional pariah uh, into some kind of regional counter, counterweight to the Sunni Arabs, to Turkey, and to uh, uh, Israel. And uh, at that point, you know, if that regime goes, maybe we can, you know, elevate people within Iran uh, who are pro-American, but who knows? I mean, that is such a, a, a mixed bag. You know, there was, there's an interesting thing. Uh, we went into Iraq, and we learned the lesson the hard way. We should have not disbanded the Iraqi military right. after we took the country. We should not have disbanded and, and, you know, destroyed the institutions that Saddam had had taken over. We should have just taken out Saddam and his top people and then kept everybody else in place because that was 
the technocrats. Those are the people who could have rebuilt that society with minimal American intervention. Um, that lesson it has also, been taken It also wouldn't point. have led to massive unemployment. A lot of people were employed yeah. by the military. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And the problem is, though, you go next door to Iran, and we're going to try, if we had to go to war and we had to topple that regime, we would try to apply those lessons learned, and, it, and we would probably try to keep some element of the IRGC and these groups in power even after we got rid of the, the top-tier people. And that is not what we should be doing. If we're going to have to go to war, unfortunately, we would have to basically gut the entire regime because it is so ideologically uh, you know, acculturated mm. toward anti-Americanism, anti-Zionism. And so we have to be very careful what Trump was doing by doing these Abraham Accords with the Sunni Arabs and with Israel, uh, and then keeping Iran or trying to put Iran back in the box that Bush and Obama had pulled it out of. Um, what he was doing was basically a very cheap way of containment, where basically we, we enhanced the relationship we already had with the Sunni Arabs and the Israelis, and we were handing the region off to those two enhanced powers so that they could contain Iran on a daily basis, and we could take a step back and be over the horizon and come in at the last minute if need be, similar to what we have with South, with South Korea and what we have with Taiwan. Um, unfortunately, the Biden administration is going the exact opposite direction, um, and they seem to be empowering the regime there, and they seem to be, you know, completely ignoring the fact that there are other players in the region who are not going to just sit by and watch Iran become a, a normal country, in the, because they can't be under that regime. And all the people there who may be pro-American, unfortunately, in Iran, they don't have the power, and they likely never will. It's just not going to work. The... Um the 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 other country you've spent so much time thinking about, and I suppose we do well to think about them both a lot, all of us, China and Iran. Um, the other one you wrote, China, you wrote an interesting column about in the Asia Times, where you are now a columnist, blessedly. That's great, Brandon. Um, and you. China beating us by being more like America. We have hobbled right. ourselves in our ability to compete with China as almost every problem we face is, it's an American problem more than a problem in the other country. Yep. Yep. No doubt. Yep. And um, we, we have completely uh, made ourselves less like ourselves at the precise moment that China, which learned at our feet, studied our history, studied America's rise in the last century and a half, They've become more like us in many respects. Um, the communist Chinese have a lower tax rate for businesses uh, than, than they do here. I mean, this is insane, right? I mean, this is a, a crazy time. Incredible. Incredible. And they can do things that we can't, um, but we can do things that we haven't. So they can, right. they can give away entire pieces of property. Uh, they can build uh, factories and build and offices for companies that want to do business there. We can't really do that, but my God, we could have a more we could have a more empowering, self empowering and growth oriented um, right. economic set of policies. Can can you talk to us about those on the other side yeah, of this break? Yeah, that absolutely. would be great. Be- because that is the point of economic growth, and China gets it. That's the weird thing. They get it. They get what it takes to grow economically we want to ban dr seuss because it makes fun of the chinese that's the difference 
Brandon Weikert will talk to us more about that when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We're talking to Brandon Weikert. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower and the publisher of the Weikert Report, doing a little foreign policy. We'll talk about Republicans and Democrats in a few moments. I want to get through uh, Brandon's column in the Asia Times first. Brandon, so America against China economically, um, it's not quite a fair fight because of some of the constrictions we put on ourselves, restrictions we put on ourselves, and some of the restrictions China just doesn't have to abide by because it's not a country of, of really rule of law or, for that matter, a country of anti-business regulations. There's a lot we could do to compete against China. We kind of hamper ourselves, don't we? We do, and, I, and I'm going to tell you, and it's in my book, and I, this is one of the military audiences that I always talk to. They, they love this story, so I'm going to recount to your audience the tale of Samuel Slater. And I wrote about this in the Asia yep. Times piece you referenced yep. as well. Samuel Slater was a uh, young man. He was uh, started working in British textiles in the, at the turn of the 18th century, or going into the 19th century. I think it was late 1790s. And he was angry because he was very effective, very talented, but it, he didn't come from a family of means. And therefore, in the British class society, he couldn't reach the pinnacle of what he wanted to reach. And so he knew there was a law that forbade anyone from taking proprietary British textile trade secrets out of England to other countries. Um, but he didn't care. He got on a ship and uh, went across the Atlantic to the newly formed United States. It's about a 12 to 15 years after, actually 20 years after the Revolutionary War. Uh, and he landed in Rhode Island. And he built the first factory in the United States, and, and it was um, uh, America was an agrarian backwater in that world system run by Britain, very similar to how China until the 1970s was very agrarian, very backwater. And then, of course, they opened up to Nixon and became, you know, a large and growing industrial power today. Uh, similarly, thanks to Samuel Slater, he offloaded all of that advanced British textile know-how and into the United States. And here he's known as the father of the American factory system. But in Britain, if he's remembered at all, it is as Slater the traitor. And that is because he engaged in what we today would call industrial espionage. He took British trade secrets that were proprietary, it was IP theft. He took them from England over to the United States and he made buku bucks. And he died a very wealthy and powerful man. And from him, we had the spinoff innovations of, you know, the, the, the Slater factory system where he would build a town next to the factory. That became part and parcel of the American uh, Industrial Revolution. Uh, he was also an inspiration. Eli Whitney, who created the cotton gin, he went to one of Slater's factories or one of the factories that were based on Slater's designs. And he studied it before he implemented his designs for the cotton gin mass production. This all comes from Slater, that kernel of knowledge mm -hmm. uh, from Britain that was stolen and given to the Americans, so much so that a 100 years after, the United States became the world's greatest power, not the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And something similar is... Arsenal of democracy, and, baby. That's right. 
And something similar is at play today, except with China becoming the arsenal of autocracy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and China, since the 1970s, basically you've had a bunch of Samuel Slaters from America going to China mm-hmm. and happily offloading all the know-how uh, to China, where they build an industrial base there, and then they spin off Innovate from that point, leapfrogging the Americans, so much so that in quantum computing technology... Um, you talk to many people in, in Silicon Valley, people that you and I probably know, uh, investors and whatnot, and they will tell you behind the scenes that they think, particularly with quantum tech, China's about five to seven years ahead of us. Maybe Even so, and Google maybe so in other areas yeah. too, right? 5G, right. artificial right. intelligence, right. And it's all because, right. all because American versions of Samuel Slater have been going over to China doing business happily. And the difference between the British Empire and the American quasi-empire is that the American government has been okay with this activity. We've been, we've allowed it to happen. And I talk about this, I say that, you know, what we need to do, and I said this to you before, classify any tech transfer from an American firm into China as an illegal bribe under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That'll stop overnight. Mm-hmm. That will stop them overnight from doing this. Nice. There's other things we can do, too, but... That's great, Brandon. Thank you. Uh, when we come back, let's talk about what you uh, what you're um, telling the Republican Party in your most recent column at the Weikert Report. <laughs> okay. They have some work to do, according to you. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Good. All right. We'll be right back with more from Brandon Weikert. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have with us Brandon Weicker from the Weicker Report. He uh, is also the author of such an important book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. You have a piece up, Brandon, at um, theweikertreport.com, uh, your website, and you spell your name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. I always get asked so people can uh, get yes. to it easier. You the bet. most German spelling imaginable. Yeah, right. And you say it right, <laughs> unlike Liebson, where we reverse the E and the I. Weichert is W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Um, Brandon, why the Democrats beat us and keep beating us. Take it away. Yeah, it's because we don't know how to organize. We can't – We. I mean – uh, as I say in the piece, you know, all politics is warfare by other means, as von Klauswitz said, and warfare and therefore politics is all about which side can organize the best to overcome their opponent. Um, Republicans, at least half, of, go, going back to FDR, at least half of all presidents have been Republicans, and yet almost none of them have had the kind of lasting impact on society, on culture, on the bureaucracy, on academia, the way that the Democrats have. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a big problem here, because we can win all the elections and yet still somehow keep losing the country. And, um, you know, I, in the piece I get into uh, sort of my observations, I, you know, I started working on Republican Party campaigns at the age of 16, um, I worked on and off until the age of 26 or 27 when I got married, and then the wife said, "You can't, you can't do this anymore." Um, but I, I, you know, I know I have, and then I have policy experience as well. I've also worked on the Hill, as you know. So I've kind of seen every level of politics in this country, and the one thing I have always picked up on is no matter how many great donors we have on the right, the moneyed interests are not giving their money to people and groups that can actually have the kind of lasting impact 
not just on winning elections, but on really fundamentally changing the country back to what you and I think it should be, a constitutional framework. We, the, the, the money interest, the money isn't getting to where it needs to go. It's getting sucked up by all these useless, you know, groups, these think tanks and these, these idiot pundits who are only interested in getting a Fox News contract. They're not interested in actually changing the country. And in the, in the piece, I call Stacey Abrams someone that everybody's made fun of. I think she's a genius. And I think she got the last laugh because for, for the last, since 2018, She's been running around telling everybody that she was actually the winner of the gubernatorial race in Georgia. Now, you and I can laugh about that, and it is absurd. But the difference between what the Republicans are doing and what Stacey Abrams and other Democrats are doing is Stacey Abrams rolled up her sleeves and created a formidable uh, organization for the state of Georgia with the mission of turning Georgia blue. And everybody laughed. Everybody laughed right up until November 2020. Now, I realize some of your audience is going to say, yeah, but the election was stolen. I don't believe the election was stolen. I think we lost the election because we didn't organize well enough. And I know for a fact that the presidential campaign... Even if it was stolen, though, but even to your point, if it was stolen, that's a result of us not having on the ground uh, ground prepped the way they were, even if it was stolen. Fair enough. That's fair enough. You're right. You're right. I don't have evidence that it wasn't, but I just I I don't want to get into all that. Either way, it goes Um, to the same point. You're right. Right. And and the point is, though, Stacey Abrams created an organization that literally helped to turn, was fundamental in turning Georgia blue, however lightly blue, she did it. And when Schumer called her up uh, going into the 2020 election and said, hey, I think he got burned with the Georgia governor race. Why don't you run for one of the open Senate seats in Georgia? She said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you this guy, Warnock, who I know, who's very powerful with the black community. He's a big he's a big uh, pastor. He's very popular with them. He can galvanize that that group of people we need to win elections. And she stepped down gave it to Warnock. She said, I want to be the organizer in chief for Georgia. Let me do this. I want to turn my state blue. I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to elevate myself. I could easily become, you know, very wealthy and powerful by becoming the next senator from Georgia. But I want to do this for the long term. We don't have many people on our side who are committed in that way and who are effective when they are committed. And it shows. We, we tend to gall- rally around an individual candidate, whether it be a Reagan or a Bush or even a Trump, and we tend not to think beyond the individual candidate. Well, what happens when there's no organization behind the candidate? With all due respect to Trump, we saw that. He didn't have many people behind him in, in power. It was him, Kushner, and a few other people, and the rest of the government was arrayed against him or left empty, vacant meaning it was still arrayed against him. And we saw, you know, there was no organization to pull on other than these Bush retreads who were mostly inimical to the Trump agenda. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is Trump got hosed because he didn't have anyone in his corner. He didn't have an organization. Compare that to Biden. Biden was basically sleepwalking into the presidency because he didn't have to show up Mm -hmm. because he had a team of people across the country who were committed, were very well credentialed, and who had a lot of experience in managing big organizations in these politically contentious times, and they figured out how to win. Our side hasn't done that. Our side sort of just expects American voters to kind of just get that the Democrats are crazy. Well, I've got news for our side. The people don't 
see that the Democrats are crazy. And they better start doing something beyond that which they have done. I'm talking to our moneyed interests and our people who are kind of doing this at a day-to-day operation at the top level. Because the Republican Party's organization is a disaster, and it cannot win elections. And when it does win elections, it doesn't matter because it doesn't win the hearts and minds of the people. It wins elections, and then it loses the country still, mm-hmm. as we saw with four years of Trump. We've got to have a deeper bench, and we've got to have an organizational framework very similar to how the Democrats have, where they, it doesn't matter who the presidential candidate is. It matters who they have around the president and what groups they have funneling in policies and ideas to that administration. We don't have that anymore. Yeah, it seems like we as Republicans get really animated about election processes every two years, every summer. And it's not enough, as you say. This is a 24-7 campaign by the Democrats, who do a good job at recruitment, too, by the way, which state GOPs do not do. They're phenomenal at it. Yeah, we we just don't do it very well at all and end up uh, having quite expensive primary fights that – that leave a lot of blood on the floor and a That's lot right. of voters That's marginalized. Right. You, you know, Seth, if I can just interject yeah. here, there was a there was a term that Obama threw around in 2012 against Mitt Romney, vulture capitalist. Yeah, right. That was something that was used a lot. Right. Well, that was not an Obama phrase. They picked that up from Newt Gingrich during the 2012 yep. Republican primary, yep. and they used it to greater yep. effect yep. than Gingrich yep. did. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And this very is what I'm point. talking about. It's a very good point. We have a guy who I'm very impressed with, but he's running around the nation. I would love one state GOP to just own him and adopt him. Scott Pressler, I don't know if you're aware of his work. Check him out. No, I'm not. Take him out. Take a look at him. He's known as the Persistence, and he goes from state to state helping to organize. He just needs to stay in one and instruct every state 50 times. He he is wonderful. Brandon, you're wonderful. Thank you for always spending Thank some you. of your Mondays with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. God bless you. The White right, Coat Report and Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Trades Unlimited. For all your roofing needs right now, they want to tell you about foam roofs, which are a great option for homes in the valley. Not only do foam roofs help insulate from our extreme Arizona heat, but they also help insulate your home from exterior noises. And most importantly, they protect your house from water leaks. I've had the privilege of meeting the folks at Trades Unlimited. I've gone down to their office and warehouse. These are hugely impressive people. The quality of the people they hire, fantastic. The quality of the job they do, thus also fantastic. Their quality and their craftsmanship, fantastic. They're in their 26th year of business and have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Most of their business is by referral or previous customers, and that always tells me a lot about the company. People want to come back or tell others about their great experience, and that's why we're happy to help them out with the word of mouth here. Quality and service is what you'll come to know with Trades Unlimited. They measure twice and cut once. It's hot here in Phoenix, and this hot summer sun is perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited, 480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. One seven seven five, or find them online at tradesunlimited.com. That's tradesunlimited.com. I uh, always, always, always take corrections from listeners uh, and want to always give them credit. 
for the correction. Kevin in Phoenix corrected me from something I said earlier. I quoted Anthony Fauci yesterday as saying wearing a mask um, uh, when asked about wearing a mask outside. He said it was highly unlikely that you were going to contact contract coronavirus outside, that it's highly unlikely that you would get it outside and thus wearing a mask mandate will probably or wearing a mask guidance from the CDC will probably be revised so that you don't have to. I said highly unlikely. That's not what he said. As a listener pointed out, he said the chances of getting coronavirus outdoors was minuscule. I believe that's even stronger than highly unlikely, minuscule. So thank you, Kevin, for pointing that out. I still think I'm on to something. You know, Anthony Fauci is on record last year talking about wearing masks outside. So my question is, someone needs to write the article, what did Anthony Fauci know and when did he know it? So he's been for no masks, he's been for double masking, he's been for masks outside, and now he's not for masks outside. Was he lying when he told us we didn't need masks? Was he lying when he told us we needed masks? Was he lying when he told us we needed masks outside? Or was he lying now when he says we don't? Someone needs to ask, what did Anthony Fauci know and when did he know it? About any number of things which he has changed his mind. Guess who's coming up next? One of the best. Victor Davis Hanson has a great and important new column in American Greatness on how the new anti-racism is the old racism. Victor Davis Hanson coming right up.